A few months ago, you may have seen a video that went viral uh, all around the world, really. It was of an 18-year-old young man named Brandt sitting in a courtroom addressing the woman who had killed his brother. And she had already been sentenced. Uh, she was already found guilty. She was already going to go to prison. But she, uh, she wanted to, uh, he wanted, Brandt wanted to address the woman who had, who had killed his brother, and he said some remarkable things. Uh, he looked at her and said, I forgive you. God forgives you. He looked at her and said, I love you. And then he did something unusual, as if the other, those statements weren't unusual enough. He asked permission to get down from the stand and go and give the woman who had killed his brother a hug. And he was given permission. And so he came down from the stand and the woman who killed her brother stood up and they met in between and they embraced and they hugged. He hugged the woman who had caused his family so much pain. And the video went viral because that it's a very unusual thing and then a lot of questions started coming in. Uh, one of the questions was, shouldn't he have been more angry? And that's really the question, the question of anger that we're addressing this week in our video series. The, the question of, is it, right to, is it right to get angry? Is it ever okay to be angry? And as we look at that video and look at that example, um, you really have to, the question of, was, wasn't he angry? I'm sure he was. Because the basic definition of anger is a strong displeasure, a strong feeling of displeasure. And it did not fill him with pleasure when he heard the news that his brother had been killed. And he felt strong displeasure. And just like there are many things that do not fill our hearts with pleasure, we do, we do not feel pleasure when someone we love gets hurt, when we receive some bad news, when things don't go the way that we were planning, when somebody is really mean to us, when, uh, when life is really hard, those things don't fill us with pleasure, and sometimes they affect us so strongly that we are filled with much displeasure. There's a passage in the Bible, even, in the book of Ephesians, where it says, In your anger, do not sin. Which kind of implies that it is possible to be angry and not sin. Uh, we have to watch ourselves where we go with our anger, which we'll talk about as we get into this week. But we see even, even God get angry. As Jesus was on earth, as he came down in human form, one day he was walking through the temple and he became irate, so irate, so angry that he started throwing over tables and took a, he took a whip and he started snapping it at people. And uh, he was angry, he was very angry because he loved something. And that's where anger comes from. We would never feel anger if we did not love something. And the reason Jesus became so angry in the temple that day was because he knew that the temple was dedicated to worshiping God, and that's not what those individuals in the temple were doing that day. And he knew the temple was a place that was dedicated to teaching God's word. And Jesus loved both of those things. And when both of those things were threatened, a place that was focused on God was turned into a place that was focused on money and selfishness and personal gain. Or when God's word was threatened, when instead of hearing God's loving word, the, um, the sound of money hitting, uh, money hitting people's pockets, that that became more prevalent, he became angry. A good question to ask yourself when you are starting to be filled with anger is, what are you loving that is causing you to feel angry? Are you loving God? And is God's reputation being threatened? Then it's okay to feel angry. Are you loving God's word? And is a teaching in God's word being threatened? It's okay to feel angry. Uh, and the reason Jesus felt angry when those things were threatened, in large part, was because of what God's word teaches us. 
in particular about where God decides to go with his anger. Uh, because he went very up to a place very specific with his anger. One of the passages in God's word that, uh, that I want to read for you this week is from the book of Romans, where it says, it says, Since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath or God's anger through him? And the him in that passage, of course, is Jesus. It says, Since we have been justified by Jesus' blood. And it's referring to the moment that would happen many years later when Jesus was hanging on the cross and his blood was shed to justify us. And that's a courtroom term, the word justify, which means to declare a person not guilty. And at the cross of Jesus, that's what God declared the whole world for all of their sins, not guilty. So that you would be able to walk through life knowing that your own sins of anger, when you take your anger too far, that's not gonna get the best of you in the end. It's not gonna keep you out of heaven. The cross of Jesus, the place where his blood was shed, is also the place where he assured you that other people's anger, other people's expressions of hate, other people's sins against you are not going to get the best of you in the end. God will. God's response to our anger will. He directed his anger towards Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God, so that we could know that our Heavenly Father is always directing his very best love towards every one of us. And when you feel yourself getting angry about something, sometimes legitimately, sometimes not, just start there. Start at the cross of Jesus, where God reminds you that he takes full responsibility for making sure it's going to be all okay in the end. This week we're addressing the topic of anger, and in yesterday's video, we reminded ourselves that anger isn't necessarily a sin. Even God feels angry. Um, we feel angry when something that we love is threatened. And the important question that we need to ask ourselves when we feel angry is, what are we loving? And then where do we go with our anger? There's an example in the Bible in, uh, in the Old Testament of a man who was angry and God wanted to address him because this man, he was not angry legitimately. Uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't loving something, you know, it wasn't something that he loved was threatened. Um, well, I guess it was something that he loved. He loved himself <laughs> and, and getting what he wanted. And so that was threatens, and that's not legitimate anger, but then he went to the wrong place with it. So it's the example of Cain and Abel, who were brothers. And Cain was very jealous of his brother Abel. He became very angry at him. And this is in Genesis chapter 4, God himself addresses Cain. He says, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And from that passage, we get a very important principle about our anger. Either you will master your anger, or anger will master you. And we don't often realize when anger is mastering us. It happens very subtly. There's another passage from the book of James that I want to read for you. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It gives birth to death. That if we don't manage our sin, if we don't manage our little bursts of anger, then they are going to manage us and they will eventually lead to death, which is, uh, well, Cain found that out and so did his brother Abel. Cain eventually killed his brother Abel because he did not manage 
is anger. It started out as something very, very small. When sin is conceived, it seems like not a big deal. But because of the progression that sin takes, we need to consider even the small feelings of, of anger a big deal. The small feelings of bitterness. The small moments when we give ourselves permission to say, no, I have a right to hold a grudge against that person. They're a big deal, not because in the moment they are doing any damage, but because if we don't manage them, in the end they will do, they will do great damage. They will do tremendous damage. We want God to be our master when it comes to anger. And why do we want God to be our master? Just think about how you feel when somebody sins against you. Think about how you feel when somebody says, I don't care about you. And apply that to how God must feel every time we take our feelings of unjustified anger and run off with it and let it get the best of us. Also think about how you would like to feel or what you would want someone else to do when you have sinned against them, when you have wronged them, when you're the ones whose angry words cut to their heart and destroyed them. You would like to look at them and apologize and have them say what? Probably the same thing that God says to us. That your anger is not going to get the best of you in the end. We hear as much in the book of 1 Peter. When we look at Jesus, who also knew what it was like to be insulted and have people hurt him, said when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. When anger is your master, you will always find death. When God is your master, you will always find someone who will guard your soul and protect it, no matter what it costs him. Let God be your master. A number of years ago, two of my children were in a, uh, a little league baseball, uh, baseball league that didn't keep score. They, um, the kids were young, they just wanted to give the kids the experience of being on a team and having some fun without the pressure of feeling like they need to compete or they need to win and it sounded like a great concept. The, uh, the, first, the first afternoon that my boys had a game, it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon and I'm sitting in the bleachers talking with the parents, having a good time, nobody's keeping score. And, um, and then eventually the umpire announces to everyone, this is going to be the last inning. So our boys team was going to bat once and then the other team would have their turn. And uh, my boys team, they didn't do so well in that part of the inning and it went very, very quickly. But the, but the, next, uh, the next inning, it didn't go so quickly. The, uh, the other team kept scoring run after run after run after run. Their, um, people kept coming around the bases. Um, in baseball, of course, you need to get three outs before the inning is over, and they had one out when they had runners on first base and second base. When this kid comes up to the, up to the plate, and this kid hits a line drive out into the outfield, the runners on first and second, they score, and then the kid who hit the line drive out into the outfield, he's rounding the bases, and as he turns around third base to come into home, all of his teammates come running out of the dugout to meet him at home plate as if he just scored the winning run in a league where you don't count runs. But of course, the reason the kids came running out of the dugout, only when that kid crossed the plate, and the reason all the parents of those kids started screaming, 
with pure delight. And the reason why even the umpire said the game was over at that point was because in this league where nobody was keeping score, everybody was keeping score. <laughs> we, knew, um, we knew that that run was one more than the number of runs my boys team, my boys team had. And everybody, and everybody knew it. They, uh, they kept score. So what do I tell my kids on the way home? It's like, well, good job, boys. You didn't officially lose. <laughs> but of course, they were keeping score. They knew. They keep score. And keeping score has quite a bit to do with our anger in life. And when we give ourselves permission to be more angry than we ought to be, we have this expectation that life is supposed to be fair. That life is supposed to be fair. And so we keep score and we tell ourselves, well, if such and such is nice to me, then I will be nice to them. But if such and such is not nice to me, then watch out because I have, then I have the right to be angry towards them. Or if such and such a person gives me exactly what I'm expecting and exact, gives me the good things that I'm hoping for, well, then I will reciprocate and I will do good things for them. But if they withhold from me the good things that I'm expecting, then they should not expect that I'm going to be kind towards them at all and I might just let them know how unhappy and angry I am at them. There are, two trouble, there are two problems with that expectation. Firstly, Jesus does not give us the right to expect fair treatment in this world. He said flat out to his disciples, in this world you will have much trouble, even if you aren't the cause of any trouble. Or another way to say it is, we don't have the right to expect to be treated any better than Jesus was when he came into this world. The other problem with those types of expectations, going through life expecting to be treated fairly, expected that things are going to be even, is that if we walk through life going through that way, uh, expecting those things, then we run the risk of running through life without God. Because that's not the way that God operates. I mean, really, the question of the Christian life is, am I happy to have God and nothing else? That's what it means to love God more than anything. Am I happy to have God's love even if I don't have the love of anyone else? Even if I don't have anyone else's acceptance or approval or a fair treatment? If, if the answer is no, then we are running the risk of walking through life without God. And God knows how hard it is to walk through this life. He himself knows what it's like to be oppressed and afflicted. We hear that many times in Scripture. We've talked about it sometimes already this week. Let me read you another passage from Scripture from Isaiah chapter 53, where it says that he, Jesus, was oppressed and afflicted. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And not because he did anything wrong, not because he was a troublemaker. And how did he respond? He did not open his mouth. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And why did he not open his mouth? Because he was happy having you and nothing else. You and nothing else. And if you have a God like that, you don't need things to be fair because you have the promise that one day it'll all be perfect. I recently discovered yet another reason I probably never want to live in Siberia. <laughs> because in Siberia, your town might get invaded by a pack of 50 wild polar bears. <laughs> that recently happened to one town in Siberia where, uh, where a group of about 50 polar bears decided to come into town. And of course, they weren't nice and polite polar bears. 
They, uh, they started attacking people on the streets, digging through people's garbage, making people, making people scared. They had to stay in their homes and um, kind of afraid and worried about what would happen to them if they confronted one of these, one of these wild beasts. And, and after it was clear that the polar bears were going to stay for a while, they stayed for about two months in this town. The, um, over the course of time, the, uh, the local government gave all the citizens very clear instructions on what they were supposed to do if they happened to have a run-in with one of these polar bears. And do you know what the residents were supposed to do if they happened to come face to face with one of these wild beasts? Nothing. The government clearly said, do not hurt them. Do not shoot them. Do not harm these wild beasts who are causing uh, so much difficulty in the life of everyone. And why not? Because polar bears are an endangered species and they need to do everything they can to protect, to protect these precious animals. You think that was an easy, <laughs> you think those were easy <laughs> instructions for those residents to carry out? I don't know. But I think those instructions might be easier than carrying out some of the instructions that we receive in the Word of God. For example, in, in the book of James, we're told this, where it says, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Slow to become angry. It's not always an easy thing. I was reading a, a book written by a pastor who in his book was talking about his mom who died giving birth to him. And the reason he was talking about his mom who died giving birth to him was because he was talking about his relationship with his dad, who he says resented him and blamed him for his wife dying. He said he never remembers his father doing anything affectionate for him, never saying a kind word to him. He says when he was nine years old, he remembers his dad once putting his arm around him for 30 seconds at a funeral. And that was it. His dad died when he was 12. And do you know how he said he felt when his dad died? Relieved. He felt relieved. He felt relieved. Do you know what his dad was? In his mind, his dad was his enemy. I know with the word enemy, we think of, we think of terrorists and hijackers. We think, of, we think of big criminals and people who break into stores and take things. And uh, we think of uh, big wars and, you know, whatever else. But really... Our enemy is anybody who gets under our skin. An enemy is at least the ones that will have an impact on our lives, the ones who are typically close enough that they can put our arms around us and we can put our arms around them. They can be our enemies. The ones who tempt us to not do what Jesus commands us to in the Gospel of Luke. So in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is addressing what we should do with our enemies. And he says, when we come face to face with our enemies, he says, you should make sure to bless them. Bless those who curse you, he says. You know, in other words, he's telling us to legitimately desire the happiness of those who are hurting you. It's a hard thing. He also tells us to pray for those who mistreat you. And he's not telling us to pray that they get struck by lightning or pray that they get exiled to a place in Siberia where polar bears will attack them. He's literally telling us to pray for their benefit. Pray that good things will happen to them. He also tells us when we come face to face with our enemies, he says, well, if someone slaps you on the one cheek, he tells you to turn the other cheek also. And, you know, this is where the phrase turn the other cheek comes from, which many people believe means that if somebody does something bad to you, you should just turn around and walk away in the other direction, but that's not what he means. When Jesus says, uh, when Jesus, Jesus is saying that if somebody slaps you on one cheek, you should turn your other cheek toward them and invite them to hit you on the other one as well, to stay there and to take it. He also says that if we come face to face with our enemies, he says, don't withhold your shirt from them 
You know, if, uh, if anyone wants to take something from you, give them more, give them your shirt, give them your coat, you know, give them more and more. In other words, my personal comfort should never be the most important thing to me. And by saying all of these things, he is not saying that your goal in life should be to make yourself vulnerable. He's not saying that your goal in life should be to get hurt. He's not even saying that you need to carry on a friendship with those who are your enemies. He's just saying, boy, don't forget. Don't forget how God treats you and me. Don't forget that Jesus was really good at blessing those who cursed him. Don't forget that Jesus was really good at turning to the people who were pounding nails into him, not just his cheek, but his hands and his feet and his side and everything. Don't forget that we have a Jesus who prayed for you, who prayed for your forgiveness, who prayed for the strength to get all the way to the cross where he would give it. And don't forget, don't forget about the Jesus whose own comfort was not the most important thing to him. Your comfort is. Your comfort is. And it always will be. When we are tempted to, uh, to let our anger get the best of us, just remember. Remember Jesus. Remember the safety that we will find in him. Remember his promise that you're going to be okay, no matter what it will cost him. As we close out this week when we're talking about anger, I want to end with two very important points on anger. One is a very practical one. And it's, the, it's this. You have more control over your anger than we often give ourselves permission to believe. The illustration that was shared with me a number of years ago was the illustration of, you know, think about a time when you were a child and your mother was yelling at you and they were irate, they were angry, and they, uh, they were, you know, she was letting you know exactly just how not pleased she was with what you were doing, but then suddenly the phone rang and she picked up the phone and she said, Hello? <laughs> she didn't sound angry at all. She was able to turn it off because she was motivated enough to. And, and you can do that. We often, we often lie to ourselves. And it's a lie that Satan wants us to believe, that our anger is more powerful than, than it really is. You, you do have the strength, you do have the ability to, uh, to control your anger, to manage your anger in a way that we often don't give ourselves permission to believe. If Christ himself lives in you, and that's what Scripture says is true, that Jesus himself lives in you, his strength lives in you, we do have the strength, we do have the ability to turn it off. But let's say that's a sin that you struggle with. Let's say that's hard for you. Let's, uh, let's imagine that you are somebody whose anger gets the best of you often. Maybe your anger has even done some damage. Maybe you've hurt someone in your anger. And you live with that guilt, and you live with that hurt, and you've tried to stop. But it's, it's such a difficult thing and a difficult burden. What do you do then? Well, then I want you to think about a $20 bill. Okay. How much is a $20 bill worth? It's worth $20, right? Um, what if I bend it? You know, what if I bend it up? Now how much is it worth? Still worth $20, right? What if I take it and what if I crumple it up? What if it looks like just a, just a big old mess? Now how much is it worth? Still worth $20, right? Well, what if I take this crumbled up $20 bill and I put it underneath my shoe and I just like, you know, just mash it into the ground and now it's all dirty and yucky from what's underneath my shoe and from what's on the ground and I pick it up again. Now how much is it worth? Still worth $20. Why? Because that's the value that was assigned to it by the United States government, no matter the condition it's in. 
And I want you to think about that if you are tempted to define yourself and your value by your anger. God doesn't assign your value that way. Instead, he looks at the cross of Jesus to determine your value. Because that is the place where he assigned your eternal value. In the book of Galatians, it says we are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That's who you are. Child of God. Perfect. Redeemed. Forgiven. Loved. Adored. God doesn't look at you and see your anger. And so when you look in the mirror next time, you don't need to either. Your anger doesn't determine your value. God does. Jesus does. The cross did. Determine your value the same way. And also the value of those whose anger you have to deal with. Hey everyone, Pastor Mike here with Time of Grace. Did you know that our ministry is 100% donor-funded? That's a fancy way of saying that we don't receive buckets and buckets of money from the government or from any church or denomination. Instead, our ministry is completely fueled by people just like you. People who listen and watch our videos, people who give generously, and people who allow this message to spread to more and more souls whose lives are then changed. So for all of you who give, thank you so much. And for all of you who haven't given yet, we would love for you to do so. We really need your support. We want to reach people now with the good news of Jesus, which is why we need your help. Thanks for praying about that. Thanks for considering it. And thanks in advance for your support. God bless. Hey, what's up everyone? Pastor Mike here from Time of Grace. Thanks so much for checking out this podcast. Uh, we certainly would love this message to reach more and more people. So if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing this podcast, it would bring it to more people's eyes and we pray this message into more people's hearts. Thanks for your support and we'll talk to you soon.